Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, long-term care in Ontario has been a concern for decades, but COVID-19 has amplified the need for change. What do we need to do? Well, we'll talk about that. How do we get to zero community COVID-19 cases here in Canada? Dr. Cien Siao from McMaster University Faculty of Health Sciences will join us with all those details. And further restrictions will be announced today after they release the new modeling numbers for COVID here in the province of Ontario. What can we expect and how is it going to affect us? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk right now about long-term care facilities here in the city of Hamilton and right across the province of Ontario. It's been an ongoing problem. It is not a new problem. This is not something that was caused by COVID-19, but it's uh, something that COVID-19 really kind of blew open and said that the shortcomings about staffing, about poor working conditions, uh, about mistreatment of staff, and on and on and on it goes. And uh, the province has uh, made a commitment, they said anyway, uh, to do something about this. You may remember back in the early summer, the Premier was on this program and told me that he said it was his personal commitment that he was going to fix the long-term care system. Well, it's uh, into the new year right now, and uh, we're still waiting to see some action on this, and it's getting very, very frustrating. Now, the vaccine rollout has started, and we were told that staffing and residents at long-term care facilities were going to be near the top of the line when it came to getting out the COVID vaccine. Uh, but apparently there's some hesitancy about that. Dr. Nathan Stahl, who's a geriatrician with Sinai Hospital in Toronto, says vaccine hesitancy in healthcare is a bit of a problem. There's a lot of skepticism about the vaccine. And in fact, you know, there, there's many healthcare workers that have told me that they have either refused when they've been called for the vaccine or that they're very hesitant and may not accept when they get the call for the vaccine. They, they want to sort of, quote unquote, wait and see and wait for other people to receive it. Well, can you blame folks in long-term care facilities, both staff and uh, and residents, for being a little skeptical? I, I can see where they're coming from. It's an ongoing problem, and and again, the only way that we're going to get the province to really act on this is to be loud, to vocal, and consistent about this. And uh, joining us to talk about the problems and hopefully some of the solutions on this is Dr. Vivian Stamalopoulos, who is a long-term care advocate and professor at Ontario Tech University. Uh, doctor, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime. My pleasure. Well, I saw on the weekend uh, the news coverage. Uh, you were part of a demonstration at one of the Toronto long-term care facilities, uh, St. George's. Could have been anywhere in the province of Ontario because, I mean, the, the problem is, is is epidemic right across the province right now. Uh, you have to be frustrated. And I know the staff that I've talked to at various facilities are frustrated about the inaction and the uh, the quote-unquote commitment but lack of, of, of follow-through that, that the province seems to be doing here. I mean, it's a disaster across the board. I don't know where you start. I, I mean, do you want to start with vaccines? The fact that we've got, yeah, let's, you know, let's, yeah, let's go there. Yeah, yeah, let's go there about this. And the, the bad, the, the lovely part is that there's no transparency with this government, right? So me, like most people, have to get vaccine data from Dr. Jennifer Kwan on Twitter. So we know now because of her that there's around 74,000 uh, vaccines still in freezers. Okay, so that could rough. We have about 77,000 residents. So we have enough sitting in freezers that could <laughs> vaccinate the majority of residents, yet they're sitting in freezers. So mind blown, again, as usual. Um, the fact that we, you know, dropped the ball in placing vaccination clinics inside long-term care homes, like Quebec did and stood alone in its decision to wisely do that, is another area where Ontario dropped the ball. Uh, the fact that this initial vaccination plan only covers four hotspots, which only comprises a quarter of all long-term care homes. The vast majority of homes are outside of these hotspots. And there are hotspots right now 
that aren't designated hotspots, but their long-term care sector is on fire with outbreaks, Niagara being a prime example. Um, so this is what we mean. It, it, constant riddles in these, in these holes. It doesn't make sense. And I remember General Hillier doing his, you know, high and mighty speech about how residents, they're going to get it first. That's all I know, even before the vaccine arrived. And w- what's happening? Come on, General. I mean, this is a losing strategy. This is not how you win wars. This is how you lose wars. And people are dying as a result. So, I, and you've been very active about this and, and, and very adamant about trying to get some action on this and trying to get the government to move on this. Uh, my understanding is you had a, actually you had a phone conversation with the prime minister's office earlier. I did yesterday, and I have another one and today. How, and how'd um, that go? Well, you know, I, I'm still feeling out the situation. I was hoping to get more of a sense of urgency. Um, maybe that's just me because I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a fiery Greek woman, so you know I emote very <laughs> obviously, and maybe other people don't. So maybe I'm reading the situation wrong. But um, I'll see in the follow-up meeting I have today with with uh, several people who um, it seems are working on legislation right now. So I am hopeful. I will keep hammering that home. I have another meeting on Wednesday with uh, Jagmeet Singh, and I've obviously talked to Anna Mae Paul because I've done, she's held three pressers in the last week that I've been involved with. So. Just really trying to get all the federal leaders involved here and put the heat on um, our prime minister to to do something, because unfortunately, there are premiers like our premier who are just not acting on long term care. And and we're seeing preventable deaths and they are accelerating now into the second wave under, you know, rising community transmission. And it's just getting into the home all the more easier now. But, but, Doctor, we're getting just inundated here with gobbledygook and double talk from governments yeah. about this. And you oh. mentioned the, the terminology, and I've heard both Mr. General Hillier and the, Prime, the Premier talk about these hot spots that need to be a priority. When you look at the stats and the number of deaths and the number of new cases in long-term care facilities, by definition, isn't every long-term care facility yes. a hot spot? Yes. There's no doubt. Every single long-term care home should have been prioritized. There's no question about it. This is failure. This is failure. It, but those are the numbers, and I mean, and they try to justify this. Now, we talked with the, the folks in the Hamilton area yesterday about uh, their rollout program, and uh, they said they're just about finished now doing staff members at most of these facilities, uh, and then the, they, apparently right after that they're going to start going into the residents at some of these facilities. So, so yeah. far, so good. But even then, I have heard, after that conversation I had yesterday, Vivian, a number of people that emailed me after and said, you know what, we're not even included. We don't seem to yep. be on their radar. Uh, I mean, they have not done their homework here yet. No, you know, they... no, they have not. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. But this is, I mean, this is tried and true. I mean, when when did the government do their, their homework across this entire pandemic response? I mean, go from education to business to lockdown procedure. I mean, they've never done their homework as far as I can see. Find me one policy that is evidence-based. I'll find you a unicorn. I mean... <laughs> Where is it? I'm sorry, but... And, and here's the problem. I mean, we there have been a couple of examples. There's one uh, in Hamilton that, I, that I've that i been aware of for quite some time right now, and it's it's a, actually it's a home for retired nuns in, in uh, Catholic order. Uh, and uh, they're not even designated as a long-term care facility, even though that's what they do there, uh, because I guess at one time they used to make the hosts, you know, for the communions, uh, for all the, the churches in this area. So now they're, they're designated as a bakery or something. So they said, well, you don't qualify. Are you kidding? Like, walk through the door before you make a, a, a judgment know. like that. The, the, these people are so 
anal retentive when it comes to these qualifications. Well, I just don't even think they have the information or the expertise. I mean, Minister Fullerton is completely over her head here. She doesn't seem to understand that, you know, there are many types of, of seniors' homes, right? So there's even these transitional care units that I have families that reach out to me about. There's Retirement housing is just as important, too, right? So, but, you know, long-term care, first and foremost, retirement housing, if not at the same time, immediately after, um, you know, complex care, these transitional care units, they all count too. They all kind of have very similar populations. So they just, I think if she actually was out in the field and actually visiting homes and speaking to frontline workers, she'd have a better handle on the situation. But it's very clear how far removed she is from her actual, her actual portfolio. I mean, all she does is tweet inane tweets that make no sense. I'm, I'm I've nicknamed her a few things, but one of them being the Riddler, because literally, if you look at some of the tweets that she provides on a daily basis about the number of outbreaks and people in homes with, uh, it's so confusing. It is literally an an LSAT question that you cannot provide the answer to. Go take a look if you want to laugh. Or she's prevent, you know, trying to show the least worst case scenario. So yesterday she posted that, you know, um, what was it? A certain region was vaccinated, but she didn't say the numbers. I'm sorry. I don't believe you when you say the entire long-term care region in Windsor was vaccinated. I want to know the numbers. I want to know where essential caregivers included in that vaccination rollout, how many staff were vaccinated, how many residents, because I'll put all my money. It ain't a hundred percent uptake and you are deliberately not providing the data that will let us see just how bad this situation is. Yeah, I asked yesterday about the Hamilton numbers, and, and I was told that uh, with the vaccinations, with the staff, uh, there were, he, I think he said about 92, 93 uh, percent, and, and there were some people that just refused, and we talked about that, of course, uh, with the uh, Dr. Stahl's uh, comment just before you join us here. There are some people that are rather skeptical about this, but I can understand their skepticism. I mean, you know, they've been promised the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the province hasn't delivered. I can understand why they might just say, well, let's wait and see here what's going to develop here. There's, it, there's, there's a, a, a sense of mistrust trust right now but between staff oh. members of these facilities yeah. and the management of these facilities and certainly yeah. between staffers and and the government well how can you not have mistrust and that mistrust by the way is paralleled if not more increased by the family caregivers you've been told for months now that you're using every measure and every tool to support residents and you're going to do everything you can to hold these homes accountable i remember premier ford in that post-military um, you know, leaked report presser. And yet what has happened? I mean, people aren't stupid. People have seen that there is, these are crocodile tears. There's, there's no actual meaning behind the words that we're hearing in these, in these pressers. There is no value to what our officials are sadly saying because we haven't seen implementation of clear safeguards that would protect this sector. And, for, and staff are the one working in these dangerous facilities unprotected and seen first and foremost how they've been failed by this government and family are painfully experiencing the many of their loved ones who have passed because of preventable error i mean it's just astounding i guess one of the things that really frustrates me and 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 maybe it's because i'm in the media and i get a little too close to this uh you know, the government, of course, does these daily briefings, and, and the prime, the premier rather gets up there at one o'clock every afternoon and says, "We're trying our best." You know, we're really. Do they not understand that, that that we read other newspapers and that we get information from other sources besides the provincial government? And you mentioned about the vaccine rollout, Vivian, and and what the province of Quebec is doing. It's not perfect, 
but it's more effective than better. what Ontario. Now, and not unlike what they did this past summer when they talked about the staffing shortages 100%. in LTC facilities. They put a program together that said, you know, we're going to get yep. this done right here, right now. The province has a four-year program. I mean, come on. I, not just that. They, they did something that we have been begging this government to do, in addition to the long-term care commissioners, in their second or second or first interim report, which, you know, they've largely ignored the recommendations therein, uh, about implementing infection prevention and control managers at each home. That is something that would have prevented what we saw at Tender Care, what we saw at Sunnycrest. Preventable IPAC error that should never have happened this late in the game, this late in the COVID game, yet it's happening because we still have homes that are operating like the wild, wild west. They're throwing new staff onto the floors with no training in the most dangerous, vulnerable sector. And we have a minister who, you know, has the blinders on and, and has the audacity to go on TV, you know, and her, her public pokeroo appearances when she does make an appearance to say that there are no homes with staffing problems. Are you kidding me? Every single frontline worker that I've spoken to has said they are wildly understaffed. And this was the case even before the pandemic, let alone now when we have homes where upwards of 50, 60 staff are sick at home. Who is sent in to replenish those staff? We have no crisis response system to actually help these homes. One thing we suggested in the summer for them to do was to put in real time a live reporting of staffing levels at each of these homes so that we could monitor. And when we see those numbers dipping, because a lot of these homes mm -hmm. don't want to publicize that they're in these wild outbreaks. But at least if we have some sort of measure updated in real time, we can see and we can get help sent in proactively. Nope. You think they listen to us? Nope. What do we know? We only have lived experience and research experience in this. Oh, crazy us. Let's talk about the uh, the elephant in the room here that the government doesn't seem to want to address at all. Uh, that's the public versus private uh, facilities in this province. Oh. And the overwhelming majority, of course, are, are, are privately owned, uh, run by major corporations. Uh, I've got some concerns, and we're going to talk about the the projection numbers for COVID a little bit later on in the program. And 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 my beef with the premier has always been you're listening to the wrong people when you're developing policies on this. Uh, I I think the same thing applies to long term care facilities. Uh, we know that there are an awful lot of people that are in management and ownership of some of these long term care facilities that are former members of either the progressive conservative staff or professor or, or, or at one time were MPPs or sometimes even a premier yeah. in this well, we province. Years, I, 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 I didn't just fall off the turnip truck, Vivian. You've got to know that those people have the Premier's ear. Yeah, there's no question about it. And we have multiple stories of former previous uh, Ford staffers, very recent former staffers, now full-time lobbyists for the pro for-profit sector. And when you look at the policies that have come out, like the resident care uh, training program, uh, which is looking to get displaced retail and hospitality service workers in the most dangerous sector, I mean, don't even get me going on that. These are all things that were lobbied by the for-profit lobby. We, these are things that were echoed in Chartwell, for example, uh, testimony to the long-term care commissioners, because I made a point of going through some of these. Uh, so, I mean, and the reduction of inspections during the pandemic. That was lobbied by the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which is, you know, generally known, although they say they represent both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sector. The majority, the majority of their homes uh, and the majority of people on their board are for-profit executives. So give me a break. Um, we have seen the people, you know, th there is a clear reticence to actually name and shame these companies. I mean, we have legitimate evidence of mass negligence. Okay, we have two ministry inspector reports from Tendercare and Sunnycrest that documented 
clear IPAC violations, clear widespread negligence, no word from our Minister of Long-Term Care, no holding of these homes accountable. We have a leaked paramedic report. The other day, Globe and Mail, devastating report of St. George about these poor residents being found naked and alone, gasping for air. And, and literally, it was a scene out of The Walking Dead where the paramedics walked into this home and nobody even greeted them. They couldn't find anyone in sight. They went, had to go and find the, the poor resident by themselves. And nobody in their entire visit actually came to see the paramedics. I, I mean, are you kidding me right now? And this is still happening. They know this is happening. And there has been no accountability. There has been no naming that it's always, every time, these terrible homes, these terrible documented cases of mass negligence, they're all for profit. Nine out of 10 of all the homes, and I mean 90%, of all the homes taken over by the voluntary management management order, for profit. <laughs> Five of the six military homes, for profit. I mean, well, the, you, you know, you know the stories here. in Hamilton here. There's a handful of them here in Hamilton that, that have, have have fallen into that category as well. Uh, and well, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the only way this is going to get fixed if we are just consistent about this and loud about this. Uh, and and I appreciate the the voice that you are giving these people because they need a voice at this stage. Uh, we're just about out of time on this segment, but uh, as they say in the business, more to come on this, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, friend. Take care. Dr. Virlin Stamatopoulos, of course, a long-term care advocate and professor at Ontario Tech University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, it's almost a year now. Actually, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the first uh, reported death of COVID-19 uh, back in, in China, back uh, one year ago yesterday. And well, well, we've seen what's happened since then. And uh, we know a lot more about COVID-19 than we did. And on the other hand, in some perspectives, I guess we don't know as much as we probably should about this. And and uh, there's a concern here about policies and about the information the governments are using to develop policies. Uh, and and th- I guess the biggest frustration now is we all want to get a handle on stopping this. And why are the numbers got continuing to go up? Even though Ontario has been in lockdown since Boxing Day, the COVID-19 cases continue to rise. Well, there's an interesting piece that was uh, published that uh, might shed some light on this. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. C.N. Seau, uh, an associate professor at McCaskey University and Canada Research Chair in Palliative Care and Health System Innovation. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Read with great interest your piece about this, and, uh, and, and I think you, you really hit the, the nail on the head here on a couple of different issues. And first of all, a lot of it has to do with uh, people coming into the country. We've talked about quarantining uh, and basically putting people on, uh, you know, saying, okay, you've got to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, but we're not very good and very strict about actually uh, enforcing a lot of these rules. And that, as you mentioned, might be part of the problem here. Yeah, I mean, they're called quarantine hotels, and I think we're just... You know, in, in Canada, we just think everyone's going to follow the rules, and the vast majority of us do, and follow the honor system and have a great sense of civic duty. But the problem is, we have this policy that if you come in from another country, um, you know, you sign the letter, you declare to the borders that you're going to stay at home for 14 days and see nobody with your own ensuite, but we just can't enforce it. And we need to enforce it by taking them directly to a hotel. We have digital monitoring and a severe penalty like fines. And this has happened in countries around the world that have very, very low cases, almost near zero. Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, many Caribbean islands. And they have been able to get to less than 50 cases a day. And they have, you know, Hong Kong is a, has a, over 7 million people in there. They, re, they now have a three-week quarantine because their numbers just reached 41 cases a day. So, if, and, be, and because they are able to do that, and they've done that for long enough, 
they now have people that are able to go to school and, you know, they obviously wear a mask, but they can go to gyms, have restaurants, they can get their hair cut. So it is a proven way that can reduce new cases. Every patient zero that's coming off the airplane has a huge risk of having a huge spider web of infections. And that's the big problem. And, and again, I want to be clear with people here. With this, not like some governments suggest, let's close the border down. No, 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 no. We understand that international travel is happening, and it's happening to a great extent here in Canada as well. But as, as I was told, Doctor, and I'm sure you've received some of the same data on this, uh, I mean, somebody who's coming from Europe or some other place and lands at Pearson Airport in Toronto uh, and clears through customs, and, and they, you know, you're told, okay, 14-day quarantine. You'll do that now, won't you? Oh, sure I will, yeah. Off they go out the door of the airport. You don't see them again. There's no way to understand whether or not they're being uh, compatible and and they're actually doing what they're supposed to do. That's exactly the problem. And maybe for the vast majority of people coming off the plane, they do not have COVID, but even one person has a huge risk of causing this huge chain. And so a great example is a well-known case in in the U.S. It was a Biogen pharmaceutical conference. Uh, One person had it from Italy. He infected 99 people in a span of two days and over eight months those there was 99 people went to their different states and had 300,000 cases known to be linked to that one case. So, you know, that's if you just think of the spider, they just didn't know when they spread it and spread it. By the time the people got sick, they had already met with, you know, dozens of people. And so that is exactly the issue here. If you have even one person every day, you know, a thousand people coming to Pearson Airport, um, they're at risk. And we need to ensure for just think of all the people making sacrifices. And we're talking about virtual schooling and I'm a parent. Uh, you know, who are, haven't seen their, their parents and their grandparents uh, are now being asked to do virtual schooling. Some places have lost their jobs and, and people have lost their lives. Think of all the sacrifices we're making. And yet we're allowing people to just say, oh, yeah, I, I feel good. I, you know, I'm going to quarantine. But do they really? I don't know. I feel like we should make sure. Um, and 14 days in a hotel, that's just the cost. If you want to travel, that's the, that's the new cost. And, and we're, we won't be the first ones to do it. There's lots of countries that have done it and it has worked. Well, and I understand that people are going to get frustrated by this and say, "Oh, come on, really? You know, I get off the plane. I just came in from London or wherever it might be. I feel great." I don't. But as you mentioned in your piece, though, doctor, uh, thirty to forty percent of the people that actually test positive or are positive are asymptomatic, so they may not even know that they have it. That's exactly it. I mean, if we just trust how we feel, um, you know, we're going to be in big trouble. This is like a silent disease. You can't see it. It's in the air. It's probably spreading more because it's winter now and. Uh, you know, the virus stays in the air longer. And we have these variants from UK that are even that spread even more. So we, this is not a joke. I mean, we are being asked, uh, you know, we have a lockdown across the city. It could keep going on and on. This virtual schooling can keep going on and on. So the asymptomatic piece is really important. But even people who don't feel well are making different choices. We don't we, we you know, we all have different thresholds for risk. People who don't feel well might might just be like, well, it's a cold, and so I'm going to go to work and, and not really think of the consequences necessarily that they're going to infect people, especially if they don't know a lot of people um, who, who have it. So I hate to say it, but we can't afford to have even one case. We really have to have a very clear policy, and we've already done so much you know, to the lockdown. Why would we not take the final step and make sure no new cases are coming in? I mean, the best analogy is like a leaky roof. Right. If you had water coming through your ceilings, you're going to put buckets and towels all over the place to just, you know, control the water, find out where it's going. But if at the end of the day, you don't patch up the hole where the water is coming in from your roof, you're always going to have a water problem. And that's what's happening. All these 
things that we're putting in, virtual schools, they probably are effective at stomping out. They're flattening the curve, reducing the cases. But if every day we're letting in new cases, which it's a never-ending cycle. And we're just, then we're just waiting for these vaccines to roll out and, you know, the whole issues about vaccines, which, which probably is going to be effective. But, you know, variants change things. You know, that's, we need both. We need to do both. It's, uh, it's, it's somewhat problematic, and I think it underscores a lot of the frustration that a lot of us are feeling. And that, that's why I, I read with great interest uh, your piece that was uh, re- re- published earlier this week. Uh, because, I, you know, we're going to get more information and apparently more stringent you know, restrictions from the, per- the premier sometime later on today. Uh, and you're right, they're going to talk about restaurants and reduced hours for stores and things of this nature. But uh, the horse is already out of the barn. I mean, if, if we're saying, okay, we're going to try to stop the spread, but you're allowing people to come into the country who may be symptomatic, even if they're asymptomatic, uh, it, it's, it's, as you mentioned, what we're doing here is really almost immaterial because we're just letting new cases in, potential new cases in anyway. Yeah, it's like we're treating the symptom, but not the root cause. And I think the other big issue is obviously airplanes include the involve the federal government. So this has this is not an Ontario thing. This yeah. is a federal thing. And yes, we have trucks coming across the border and their essential services. So all the more reason why we need to make sure those that are flying in, you know, we can we can be sure that they when they've done their 14 day quarantine with you know two negative COVID tests, that when they when they can return home and back into into society, that they don't have COVID. Um, and, and, if, and the places that locked down and, and uh, did this, Hong Kong, Singapore, the places I mentioned, they were, for about four to six, maybe eight weeks, they did that. And then they could start opening up business because the, the, there were no new cases. And it's like, it's like the leaky roof again. They were able to stop the, the leak. And now they're dealing with just the, the water that's in the house and they've dried it up. And then they can start to open it up. And that's what we're trying to get to. Otherwise, Frankly, we're just, you know, we're just always going to be putting more restrictions that are not going to, to, to make it any better. It's all in vain. This, you know, we're already having very strict lockdowns, uh, you know, virtual schools. I don't know how much more we could ask of our, of our citizens and for how much longer. Um, and it's going to be in vain if we're letting in new patient zeros every day. Because there are other jurisdictions uh, that are doing this, and, and, and professional sports comes to mind. I mean, we know last year how they dealt with this. They had the bubble in hockey and in basketball, and, and you know, and that, that actually worked out pretty well. But even in the other sports where they don't have it, uh, there the quarantine level and, and the quarantine rule is very much in place. I mean, uh, I don't know if you're a football fan, but, I mean, the Cleveland football coach last week missed the game because he was tested positive, and they said, 14 days, you're not coming anywhere near us. And they're enforcing that. So if we're doing it for that, why aren't we doing it for the society in general? for communities in general 100 percent. We, we saw it in atlantic canada over the summer they didn't have anybody in new uh, you know for that wasn't that didn't already live there and they were able to have a really you know great summer and uh and relatively low cases in the community almost no co- community cases no spread and same with the nba you know and they needed to sign contracts that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars that they were not going to do that because that financial penalty was an incentive to make sure you complied and it's the same here. We can't just go on the honor system. Uh, we need to make sure that if people break the quarantine, uh, in the, if you go to the hotel, you stay in your room, you do not leave your room. You get takeout food. They have people in the, in the halls and cameras to make sure you don't leave your cell phone monitoring. And if you do, there's a penalty. There's a severe fine. And that is the way that is going to make sure uh, we can keep all of us safe. I think that that's the price of traveling. If you wanted to go to the Caribbean or have a vacation and come back, or if, if, whether we can stop the business of policing what is essential and not essential travel, and if you travel, this is this is the new you know this is the new add-on date that you have to. That's just part of it. It's the added cost and time.
this is actually a, a, a piece of a bigger picture that I, I've been concerned about, and I'm sure that you've seen the evidence of this too, Doctor, is, is noncompliance in the honor system. Uh, and, and I understand that, you know, we don't want the nanny state. I get that. You know, you don't want somebody looking over your shoulder and saying, hey, Doctor, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, what are you doing? But the fact is, is when there is no enforcement and when there is nobody saying, look, it, we have to monitor this, uh, there are too many people that just say to hell with it. I'm not going to do this. And that's how you get the large parties or the car rallies like we had in Ancaster a few months ago or, you know, the house parties over the Christmas season. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we knock on doors or look through windows to make sure that people are being compliant, but the fact is is it, that we all know that, that there's no, com, there's nobody monitoring this. There's nobody going to do anything about this unless there are egregious cases like this, and the result is the increase in, in new cases that we see. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. If we do this really strong stance, first of all, the, the hotel quarantines for, for a long period, forever, you can't have new cases coming in, and that's but if we do this lockdown for, you know, six to eight weeks after that and the community cases come down and all the evidence shows they come down, then we can go back to opening up. And it's the opposite. It's no longer in any state. We can still be, you know, try to have fewer parties and have less people and socially distance. But if you, you know, if you had if you were, you know, one meter instead of two meters, the risk of spread is so much lower because there are so few community cases. So it's like we can we don't have to be in any state and it goes top to bottom, we need to be really strict up front to make sure there are no new cases and reduce and at the same time do all the things we're doing, the lockdown, the virtual schooling, um, and it will work. And then we can open up. And that is how all these other places have done that. They aren't all locked in the rooms and having this hotel quarantine. They're able to do that so that they can return back to a new normal, but still relatively normal where they can get their hair cut, etc. So it, it, it allows people more freedom if we follow the, these rules up front, and we need policies and enforcement to make sure that we're able to. Well, uh, New Zealand, who went through this protocol just uh, earlier this week, I'm sure you saw, Doctor, declared themselves COVID-free, not reducing the numbers, not, you know, short of the COVID-free. Uh, so this can be effective. Uh, doctor, a great piece today. Thank you so much for this and for shedding the light on this. I really appreciate it, and thanks for the time today to explain all this. Okay, take care, Bill. Take care. Dr. C.N. Seal from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, members of the provincial government are going to get together and they're going to give us the uh, breakdown on the projections now for COVID-19 going forward. And uh, we're told they're pretty scary numbers. But what do these numbers mean? I mean, this is basically, of course, the foundation for how governments develop policies. Okay, what's going to stay open, what's going to stay closed. And it's, it's going to be based to a large extent on these numbers. But it's, it's very confusing for an awful lot of us, uh, as we told you. Now, we're told this much anyway. We do know that there will be no curfew in Ontario like there is in Quebec right now, but further restrictions to put a dent in the number are probably going to be announced a little bit later on. Global's Tina Trujani has the, re the details. We're in a desperate situation, and when you see the modelling, you'll, you'll fall off your chair. That, of course, Premier Doug Ford with a dire warning to Ontarians on Friday. That's expected to show a point where we reach 6,000 daily cases by the end of this month with ICUs at capacity. Now, Global News has learned the province is being urged to declare a state of emergency. Sources say that was one of the initiatives being debated last night. As well, operating hours for those businesses that are currently permitted to stay open will likely be adjusted, and only essential construction projects will be allowed to continue. All others will be shelved temporarily. Sources have also indicated the government is looking at having masks being worn outdoors when social distancing is not possible. Tina Twerjani, Global News.
So where are these numbers coming from, and what is the story behind all of these numbers? Well, to give you some clarity on this, we're pleased to welcome to the program J.P. Sousey, who is an infectious disease epidemiology Ph.D. student and a Vanier scholar at the University of Toronto. J.P., glad you could join us today. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Analytics are, are, are key to this whole thing, too. I mean, we see numbers. They're scary numbers. The Premier tells us we're going to fall off our chair when we see these numbers. But but how do you break this stuff down to determine policy, and how do you make a determination as to what the government's doing is actually having an impact, having the impact that it wants to have in situations like that? In, in other words, when you, when you get this massive information like that, where do you begin? Well, I think the first thing you do is you ignore the daily numbers. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> You know, you see this reported every day. I'm sure your station reports it. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, we hear, oh, uh, you know, numbers are up today. Numbers are down today. Is this good news? Is this bad news? Um, and the fact is that when it comes to the day-to-day numbers, there's a million reasons why, you know, one day might have higher numbers than the other that has nothing to do with really how the trajectory of, of the virus is developing. Um, so, you know, you might have uh, a backlog one day and then you get cases dumped on another day or you might have, you know, someone out sick whose main responsibility is to put cases in from a certain place. And then so you end up with those cases being reported later. And so and, you know, we, we have fewer tests done over the weekend than during the week. And so you, you get lower numbers kind of when those tests get reported early in the week. Um, and so, uh, you know, when, when, when you're following these daily numbers it's kind of like a little roller coaster um but really a lot of those day-to-day variations are not particularly meaningful and so what we should instead be looking at is the seven-day averages this is where you're really being told the story it's funny the analogy i'm getting as you're explaining this to me is a, a buddy of mine who was a financial expert was talking about he says it's like reading the stock market he says if you look at it every day you're going to go nuts uh because of the variations that happen on a daily basis you have to look at the broad picture and and a lot of us aren't trained to do that we we live in the here and now and those numbers do scare us exactly but um we also have to uh, another point that's really important to remember here is that when we're seeing numbers reported today the number of cases reported today uh, those infections actually happened a week or maybe two weeks ago. And the reason for that is, of course, that um, you know most people are going to seek testing uh, once they have symptoms. And so the time to develop symptoms from when you're infected, that can take, you know, four days, five days, six days, seven days, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. And then, you know, you got to book an appointment. You got to go in. You got to get that swab taken. That swab needs to get t- uh, tested in the lab. That could take, you know, hopefully, 24 hours, but usually longer, a couple of days, and then it's got to get sent to the public health unit, then it's got to, you know, get reported publicly, and that whole process can take, you know, a week or two overall. So remember, when when we're seeing the numbers today, these are infections that happened a week or two ago, and so it's what we call a, we call a lagging indicator. Um, and so when, you know, we know that when we're making decisions based on the numbers today, we're making decisions on, on what's happening in the past because we can't yet see what infections are doing now. Um, and this is doubly so when it comes to hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and deaths. These reflect infections that happened a very long time ago. So if you're, uh, if you're reacting to hospitalization numbers, then you're, you're really reacting in, in slow motion because those infections happened uh, potentially a month or even more ago. And so this is why we have to be really proactive. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take... Uh, a mathematical genius to, to see what the kind of exponential growth we're seeing leads to. It's a fairly simple mathematical formula, and turns out if we look at the past modeling numbers, it's one that's been pretty effective at forecasting uh, where this virus is going. 
how accurate are the test numbers, though? I mean, you mentioned if you get tested. There are a lot of people that probably have this or are asymptomatic. They have to figure, I'm not going to get tested. I'm fine. But they could be, you know, potential spreaders of, of this as well. Uh, is there a determination, to, a way to, to, to quantify just how many people may actually have this that, we, that aren't statistically part of the story here? Yeah, so there's, uh, this is one of the reasons why it's critical to have testing or to have rather tough case numbers low enough that our uh, test trace isolation system can actually uh, pick up most of, most of those cases and, and get those people tested who might be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Um, but, you know, given the case that we're in, uh, especially in places like Toronto, we just can't trace most of the cases that we have. And so we're going to be missing a lot of those down cases. So, um, it's, this is why it's important to watch uh, positivity rate. This is another uh, really important number. Uh, so the test positivity rate is uh, is the number of positive tests divided by the total number of tests that you've processed in that day. Um, and this this means that the number can change, A, if you have more positive tests and more people truly being infected, B, if you're testing more or fewer people, or C, both. Um, so if you have a rising positivity rate, that either tells you that your your outbreak is truly getting worse or you're not testing enough relative to the size of your outbreak or more likely both. And so we've seen rising positivity rates in Ontario, especially recently. And I think there's a few factors behind this. So we've seen this so, especially go up over the holidays. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, what are the factors? Yeah, so um, there's a, I think there's a few things. So we saw testing go down over the holidays. Um, I don't think it's totally surprising, you know, the holidays, people want a break, um, kids are out of school. Um, so I think uh, you're probably going to have a higher kind of bar for people to go get tested, right? So if you're if you're someone who, you know, maybe you just have a runny nose or something, you're like, oh, I think it's just allergies. And, you know, you're not someone who's very likely to test positive. Um, then maybe you're not going to go get a test over the holidays. Uh, but, you know, if you're someone who has more serious symptoms than you're probably going to go anyway. So what that means is that we're removing a large percentage of, you know, people who are really unlikely to test positive uh, from that, that equation. And that means that your positivity rate will go up because now you're testing, you know, people who, who, who have a, a much higher chance of testing positive because those people with a low chance of testing positive just aren't going to bother over the holidays. So that's one reason why positivity rates will go up. The second is I think there truly is more transmission. Um, and that's as a result of uh, gatherings over the holidays. Uh, we unfortunately didn't succeed in, in pushing numbers down going into the holiday season. We knew there was going to be a holiday bump of some kind, no matter what we did. And so I think, you know, we really it would have been great for us to push those numbers down as much as possible because then we would really, you know, dampen the size of the of the holiday bump. Unfortunately, we were not successful in that. So I think we're also seeing the, the holiday bump and kind of ripples from that, you know, spread within households after people attended gatherings and things like that. So I think those, there's two factors here. One, there's a change in who's getting tested. Two, I think the outbreak truly is worsening as a result of the holidays. But it's, I guess one of the reasons that causes some confusion here is that politicians can play with those numbers. I mean, as, 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 a, as, as an expert here, I mean, you're looking at data and hard data, but uh, like any other statistic, I guess, it can be used or abused, uh, you know, to, to try to suit your purpose. Uh, well, and, and the positivity rate, I guess, is a classic example. Remember, uh, you know, a few months ago, Trump was saying, well, of course there are more cases because we're testing more. Well, they weren't really, but then they were going up anyway. And then, of course, just before the election, uh, they stopped doing a lot of testing, and they said, see, the numbers are going 
going down. Well, it's because they weren't testing. So you know, I, I guess you can try in, in some way to try to put your own, you know, p- political policies or, 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 or philosophies into something like this. But you, you don't, you, you throw that to the side. You're just looking at the numbers itself. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you're someone trying to look at these numbers and trying to you know, understand what's going on uh, in a in a spin-free way, um, if you see the number of cases going up and the positivity rate going up, uh, that's a really bad sign because that says that you're either you know that you're not testing enough, even though uh, even though uh, sorry that that says that you're not testing enough and the number of cases are going up. Um, so it's not, uh, it's not because you're, you know, just testing more. Um, and, and, and the problem with, you know, just testing more is that, uh, the number of tests we can do can only really go up kind of in a linear way, but the number of cases can grow exponentially. And so that's why if you have, um, if you have, you know, your number of tests going up, but you still have positivity rate going up and cases going up, then that says that, you know, your, your outbreak is growing out of control and the number of tests you're doing just can't, can't keep up with that. So if you see both positivity going up and cases going up, then that's, that's a really bad sign. Are we there? Is that the two-headed monster that we're dealing with here in Ontario now? Unfortunately, yes, it is. So what does that tell you? I mean, you know, if it, when we finish our conversation here and, and, you know, the premier gets on the phone right after this and says, JP, I just heard you with Kelly. Uh, what are we going to do about this? I, you know, I, I see what you're saying here. You know, what do we do? Do we lock this place down? Do we, you know, shelter in place? I mean, what, what, what are the solutions, the potential solutions? Uh, or do we look at, uh, as we've tried to do in other places and other jurisdictions like Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong and say, look, if they did it differently and it seemed to work for them, are, are we, are we, doing half measures here i mean what, what would you advise right now i think in many ways we are doing half measures i think an important thing here is to is to look at you know what we haven't touched yet um and what what we've really kind of has not been part of the conversation yet and i think we're, we're seeing a lot of spread in in workplaces that you know it doesn't seem that, that that's being adequately addressed we're seeing a ton of spread especially in places uh, like Peel region amongst essential workers, people and, and temporary workers, so people who, you know, they might feel that they can't take time off work if they feel sick, just because it might be the difference between, you know, making rent that month or, or feeding your family that month and not. So I think something like targeted income supports for people to help them actually self-isolate uh, would be something that, that would be extremely helpful. Um, looking at, uh, you know, the definition of essential workplaces and, and maybe kind of veering more toward what we had in, in, in March, where uh, we saw, you know, people actually took that a lot more seriously than, than, than we're taking it now. Um, if, if, if a curfew is not on the table, fine, let's lean into that. For businesses like grocery stores and pharmacies, let's have longer hours with fewer people inside at once um, to kind of reduce crowding there. I mean, we've all heard the stories of crowded Walmarts and things like that, right? Oh, yeah, so let's, yeah. Let's, you know, let's lean into no curfew, fine. Make the hours longer. Make the um, make the limits on, on people inside smaller. Um, you know, um, what what else do we have? Uh, yeah, a, a, in terms of targeted economic supports, you were talking about what what we're doing with the, the federal government supporting small businesses. I think that's great. Um, and I think the the nice thing about this now is in in terms of having these targeted economic supports, they're not just an open ended fire hose of money. Because, look, we have an end in sight here. We have the spring coming. We have the summer coming. The weather will work with us instead of against us. We have mass vaccination coming. You know, that gives us an end point to this whole thing. And so, 
um, you know, it's, we don't just have to turn on turn on the fire hose of money for an indeterminate period of time. We actually do have a way out, but we just have to get through this winter first. And I think uh, looking at those those things that we haven't really touched yet uh, will will help enormously. Are we getting a little sloppy though, because of the, the, the as you say, the potential for for help down the road here? The, the fact that the weather is going to get nicer eventually, uh, and and that's going to help us. Uh, the fact that the vaccine is here, etc. Uh, are we just figuring? Look at uh, you know, I don't need to be as diligent as I was a year ago on this because that vaccine's on the way. Uh, is is that a contributing factor in seeing these numbers, both of these those sets of numbers going up? I, I really can't say. I mean, I'm I'm not sure what you know goes on in the minds of people, but I certainly. I certainly hope not, because I think that although, uh, you know, this, this vaccine and everything gives us gives us that light at the end of the tunnel, it kind of gives meaning to our sacrifice, because now we can, you know, we can say every every death that happens is a, is a vaccine preventable death. Um, and so I think it, you know, it, and it gives us an end point to this. But you I think you're you know, we're going to see those modeling numbers very soon. Um, and I think they're going to. Uh, they're going to be not surprising if you're an epidemiologist following the numbers, uh, but uh, I think that uh, the situation in, in our healthcare system will look very dire very soon if we don't if we don't make uh, very very imminent improvements. And so, um, unfortunately, I think things can get a lot worse before they get better. And uh, I would advise everyone to keep that in mind uh, going through this winter. JP, it's so good of you to join us on the program today to try to cut through some of the rhetoric here and give us a better perspective on it. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Take care. JP Selsey, of course, uh, epidemiology PhD student and uh, Vanier School and scholar at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.